Restaurants, a podcast where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. Today we meet Matt Semmelhack, owner of Mercer Restaurant Group, and Mark Lieberman, the executive chef of Mercer's flagship restaurant, AQ. Mercer Restaurant Group is doing something unique in San Francisco. Much like Dan Barber and Blue Hill at Stone Barns in New York, Mercer is taking the farm-to-table concept further by creating an ecosystem where the restaurant owners are also running a farm that produces ingredients for the restaurant. Semmelhack graduated from Princeton and hails from the East Coast, while Lieberman is a self-described laid-back California kid, but the two make a perfect pair. Let's have a listen. We are here at AQ with executive chef and co-owner Mark Lieberman and managing partner and co-owner Matt Semmelhack. Thank you for coming on the show today. It's great to have you. Yeah, thank you for uh, having us. Yeah, our pleasure. So in your own words, can you describe what AQ is and each of your roles? Uh, I guess AQ in my role is the entire food program, um, which ranges from bread program, butter program, coffee, tea, food, assisting the bar. So I guess that's my role is overseeing that, that entire section. Yeah, AQ is a full-service restaurant that we opened uh, five years ago, come November, and was originally conceived as a, a neighborhood restaurant, and I think has evolved quite a bit over the last five years to become much more of a fine dining restaurant with the theme of not only changing the menu seasonally, but also changing the decor. My role originally was on the floor as a manager, and um, we are also the owners of Mercer Restaurant Group, which is an ecosystem of restaurants and now my role has become more of overseeing that business and much less day-to-day at AQ, although I still like to give my opinions on the menu occasionally, <laughs> which are quickly <laughs> shot down. Uh, uh, not always. <laughs> pretty sometimes they're valid. <laughs> <laughs> they're, sometimes they're considered, yeah. uh, which is totally fine for me, and I have no place uh, really um, recommending to just go on the menu, but I love to do it anyway. Hard to resist, I'm sure. Hard to resist. Great. And so Mercer Restaurant Group, what's the vision behind that and how did that come about? Yeah, so it actually, I would say the vision started before AQ and it was slowly being realized. We established Mercer Restaurant Group as, that's literally the name of the company, uh, before we had any restaurants. Um, and we now have several. Um, and it's, as I said, a kind of an ecosystem of restaurants and related businesses, I should add, because we're starting to branch out now. The idea being not to have you know one restaurant concept that you plop down in other cities or, or across the country or, or what have you, uh, but to instead have a bunch of related businesses that work together to make them all stronger and also to give our growing staff opportunities in different places, whether it be fine dining or baking or barista or bar or farm. Um, and so I think this year, it should be a big year for us in terms of really branching out outside of conventional restaurants. And uh, it's been exciting and also very challenging along the way to try to realize that goal. Do you want to add anything to that, Chef? Um, no, I think you hit it on the point. Like, Mercer Restaurant Group, before I even signed on to open AQ, like, it already was a thing. And Matt always wanted it to be, you know, like he says, an ecosystem of restaurants. And I think that's why we've always tried to, like, push forward and do new things and not just be, just sit on our sit on our ends and just kind of wait for things to happen. I think we've always been very proactive. I think also to keep, you know, good staff, we need to, like, you know, find new things for them to do. Like people progress and they get better and better and eventually they're gonna either leave us or we need to find something. And that's why we try to like open other places or other venues where we can let them let them shine a little bit. Just about every situation when we've decided to open a new project, it's because there was someone that was ready to do that within our staff already. 
whether it be front of house or back of house or a baker or something else, uh, it's generally been because it, it's, n it's almost never been, oh, hey, look, we have this great idea. Let's try to open a bakery. That's great. I mean, I think uh, that's very similar to how some of the more uh, longstanding restaurant groups have acted here with uh, Absinthe Group. I know they have sort of supported the dreams of their chefs or whoever they have and cater to their specific tastes instead of trying to make it all absinthe <laughs> right. likes. Right. Have you been inspired by any of those groups out here or from the East Coast? Or I think I've been more inspired by East Coast uh, restaurant groups. Not to say anything bad about <laughs> absinthe, um, but I think there's there's actually, I, I feel like there's a lack of restaurant groups in the Bay Area. They do a lot of expansions. and I mean, there's like Michael Mina and Delfina. And, but I think in the East Coast, there's a lot more groups that have um, a lot of restaurants. Like in New York City, there's just top of my head. I mean, I used to work for Daniel, and Daniel has like a million restaurants. Um, not a million, but like 30. <laughs> not literally a million. Yeah, but he's yeah. like 35 <laughs> restaurants or something. And right. so um, I've always looked at more, I guess, sort of the East Coast for inspiration as far as restaurant groups. Right. So to that end, you both have spent time in New York and the East Coast. So can you share where you're both from and how you ended up? spending some time out there? Uh, yeah, so I uh, was born in New Jersey and grew up there for the first uh, 22 years of my life, uh, also going to college there. And I uh, was, you know, pretty eager to explore outside of New Jersey. And Manhattan was always the place growing up where you'd go for a special dinner or go see a show or, or some special occasion. And it was always kind of this uh, big deal to go. And so I lived in Manhattan for about a year and a half after college. And, you know, in your 20s, you're doing a lot of going out. And I found, it was probably the first time, I was working in real estate at the time, probably the first time when the idea to open some sort of hospitality establishment, you know, was a twinkle in my eye. And I think then it was probably a bar uh, or some <laughs> kind of club or something like that. And um, once I moved to San Francisco a couple years later, quickly decided it should be a restaurant, not a, not a bar, and maybe grew up a little bit, possibly. Um, maybe not. And uh, I think that a lot of inspiration from New York is that there's so many people, there's so much diversity, so much uh, ethnic diversity and different age groups and people doing all sorts of anything you can imagine you can get in New York. And I would say that there's, you know, there's no place like it. You know, there's just nowhere with the energy of Manhattan. Um, I think San Francisco has a huge number of things going for it in terms of the quality of food. Well, you know, there's, there's, a, there's an ongoing West Coast is the best coast, or, or East Coast is the best coast. It's, it's an <laughs> ongoing debate, what's the better coast for food? And I, it's so different, it's hard to say, but the, this little anecdote um, that I always bring up, which is probably gonna be too long for this podcast, is Chef says, okay, I wanna have a, a really finely diced small carrot on this dish that I'm considering. If you're in New York, you could have it flown in from Nantes in, in France and, and have four you know, commies dice it a hundred times until it's perfect. If you're in San Francisco, you call up your farmer and say, grow me a smaller carrot. Right. Right. And like, that's this silly uh, exaggeration. But, you know, lately that's, that's kind of something that's, that's real, you know, and it's, it's really exciting to see Bay Area restaurant groups start to think about where the food's coming from even more than before. And the very unique thing about the Bay Area, maybe, maybe one of the only places in the world where year round you can get fantastic produce. Um, so if you're in Manhattan and it's February, your carrots are not local, you know, and your lettuce is not local and your tomatoes are certainly not local. And so to, you know, to be in an area where a lot of food can be found year round within 100 miles and it's of the best quality is really, really unique. And I think that's, that's not, you know, not the first time somebody said this, but that's what's driving a lot of the progression in the restaurants in the Bay Area. 
And that part is really exciting, and, and that's what we're really trying to get into as a restaurant group. Yeah, I mean, we hear that a lot, that the ingredients are a driving force for what brings chefs from the East Coast out here and draws talent from all over the world, and the U.S. especially. But it is interesting, because we mostly talk to San Francisco restaurants, of course, we don't really get to hear the other side of the story. So it's interesting to hear that perspective of the other big food city in the U.S. <laughs> being New York. And of course, it's really hard to compare the two because there's just so many more restaurants and there's so much more history there, too, with the Western food. I think just to add to that, it's, you know, the things that draw, I imagine anyway, the things that draw culinary people to the West Coast is the high quality ingredients and the, the movement of 40 years ago of Alice Waters and, and so on and so on. Right. Um, and in Manhattan, it's probably a combination of some of the best restaurants in the world and also just the dynamic nature of the city and the energy and the fact that there's probably many restaurants where you could serve 500 people a day in right. Manhattan and in San Francisco, there just aren't. Uh, this is, you're not going to serve that many people, you're not going to be exposed to as many different ideas and things. Um, and I think we're, I think I'd say we're, you know, we're behind New York in that sense, but we're ahead of them in terms of access to great ingredients. So it's give or take on what you're interested in. Yeah. What about for you, Chef? Um, so I was born in San Francisco, and I grew up predominantly in Sonoma and Marin area. And I actually moved to New York when I was 19 to go to school. CIA that I graduated and I spent another year working in New York in Manhattan. And I wanted to go from California, just because I was like, I actually went to the CCA to check it out in San Francisco at the time, and I was like, I kind of grew up out here. I just wanted to like go away. And I was excited about going to New York, and I was kind of the same thing. Like I went to New York because I was interested in, in like going to the big city and checking out how the restaurants worked there and operated. And I came really quick to realize that I didn't like it at all. Um, I, love, I love visiting New York now, but I did not like working in New York. And probably that's a combination of me being 21 years old and just like coming from California. It was like the first time I realized I was kind of a California kid. I never like, cause I had friends that like surfed and they, I was like, you're like a like California kid, like you're super laid back, you smoke tons of weed. I like, I don't really affiliate with you. And then when I moved to New York, I was like, oh, okay, I guess I am a California kid. Cause everyone was like super tense and like uptight. And I remember going to work at uh, Ariel and everyone was just like super aggro and aggressive. And I was like, what's going on here? Um, so I kind of like bounced around to different cities for a while. I, I came back to San Francisco, I guess twice, and worked in Napa Valley for a little bit. And then I went to a few different cities after that. And I always would come back to San Francisco. And again, it was for me, it was about the ingredients. Like I would work in the East Coast, I worked in Las Vegas, and everything was always being shipped in. And I would come here and just taste like a delicious beef or a delicious baby, and can't get that shipped in. So for me, like coming back to San Francisco is always about just working again with really good ingredients. I know it sounds super cliche, but at the end of the day, we're always trying to strive for the best flavor. Northern California has some of the greatest produce that I've worked with. And so that was kind of my driving force to come back to the city. And I also like would come back here and I was like, I just, I like it here. For all its uh, grittiness and things you have to deal with, it's something that I would be living somewhere outside coming for like two days and I'd be like, it's amazing. What do you like about it here? I mean, I love the diversity of it. I love the culture of San Francisco. It doesn't have, I feel like there's no bullshit. Can I say that on your podcast? Yeah, okay. sure. Uh, you should hear start. the Chef Brenda episode. <laughs> 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 we had to do a warning before that one. <laughs> no small yeah, children. Crazy. I won't curse too much, but I feel like there's no like um, there's no pretense. A lot of people that I deal with in San Francisco, a lot of the chefs I deal with or, or I'm friends with, they're into the, the craft of cooking. And whether it's like super avant-garde or technique-driven or just super rustic, they're all like very into like what they do. And I feel a lot of cities don't have that behind their craft. I'm 
surprised to hear that. I would expect New York to be more no bullshit than San Francisco. Um, what was your experience different, with that? Different tense. Like, I feel like, and then when I say no bullshit, I mean, like, I feel everyone's, like, very real here. Mm. Okay, yeah. I sense. mean, yeah, in New York, you have, like, I guess you have more assholes in New York. <laughs> <laughs> not, you're not, you haven't not spent much any, time in the what's, tech what's industry, bullshit, have you? More assholes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this be a new t-shirt. A lot of our customers are in tech. I am in tech, okay. No, that makes sense. Um, interesting. Okay. Well, so then, how did you two end up meeting? Was it out there in New York, or was it out no. here? No. And we—it's a silly joke, but we met on Craigslist. <laughs> yes. And, awesome. And uh, usually, as all great friendships. Usually we joke that it was in the misconnection section, but it was not. <laughs> There's not a misconnection. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be um, clear. <laughs> no. We, I mean, being relatively naive and and literally having no zero experience in the restaurant industry, um, I went and found some by finding jobs, which is surprisingly hard. Uh, with with no background, and I think probably speaks to the seriousness of the restaurant industry and hospitality industry in San Francisco. It, I have an Ivy League education and couldn't get a job as a server. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that was that speaks highly about the the professionalism and the fact that there are a lot of career restaurant people here, as opposed to some other cities where it's right. you know mostly students or people trying to find just you know temporary jobs. Um, it probably even hurt you. They're like, who's this Princeton guy coming? Maybe, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Is there um, a restaurant? For sure. And, or like, what are the intentions here? You right, know, this right. guy's not going to work here for two years as a server, probably. And, and luckily, you know, enough people were willing to give me jobs to get some experience. I did some working for free, which helps get jobs. But ended up literally writing a Craigslist ad, I think that said TK Executive Chef slash Partner, <laughs> which yeah. you get a lot of hits on Craigslist. Uh, for an ad like that, we're going to build whatever restaurant you want, basically. And I think we got a lot of responses. I think we got a thousand responses in three or four wow. days. Spanning oh from exceptional chefs working at three-star Michelin restaurants like Mark um, to, uh, memorably, we had the uh, ASU chef from El Bulli responded to our Craigslist ad, uh, fully in Spanish. For those who don't know, El Bulli was a three Michelin star restaurant in Spain that closed several years ago. It has since turned into a culinary learning center. Oh, and I don't so speak great. Spanish, and so I had a friend <laughs> translate it, and we actually exchanged like two or three emails back and forth translating until uh, finally I said, this is not going to work out. If I'm going to you know, work with this person for the next 10 years, um, probably the language barrier will be an issue. Um, <laughs> but it was just amazing that you know, it speaks to the power of Craigslist, for one thing, and also the fact that people are looking to come to San Francisco to be involved in restaurants, and I think Mark was in Sacramento at the time, or maybe just living in Florida. I was in Florida still. And, um, but we had all sorts of great resumes, and narrowed it down um, by resume, but after that by fit and personality, and uh, Mark went out easily over. That's great. So how did the concept for AQ then come about? It sounded um, like you were... I think when we first started talking about the concept, well, when we first started talking, there was no restaurant. Right. So like, <laughs> we had to go through the whole process of finding a space and raising money. So that, that took a while. But I think originally when we first started talking about the concept, it was a very kind of a casual neighborhood restaurant. And it was still the concept of being a seasonal restaurant that changed the menu every three months. But it was it was a much different menu at the time. It was, had like flatbreads on the menu and it was still hyper focused on seasonality, but it was definitely more, I think, more approachable in its price point and uh, casualness. Uh, I'm, I'm chuckling because the price, our average check has gone from $40 to 120 yeah. in five years, but I, I'd also still say it's a great value. And I think that's, you know, it's indicative of the San Francisco, San Francisco market, but also that we were really not sure what we were going for in the beginning and really have evolved it every six months probably. Yeah. Um, changed the concept a little bit, tweaked it here and there. But those, those kind of, those tenants of hyper-seasonally focused and, uh, and change the decor with the seasons. How did your clientele respond to that? That's 
that's a pretty uh, steep climb. In terms of the pricing, mm -hmm. uh, it, it wasn't you know it wasn't overnight, and um, I think I remember very clearly our first review in the Chronicle. The the last sentence because I'm gonna like tear up a little bit when I think about it. The last sentence was from Michael Bauer, the the food critic, said. Uh, I hope the owners don't recognize how affordable it is because the food's so good. Aww. Yeah. Um, and it was, or it, you know, I hope they don't notice and change the prices because it's such a good deal. And right. that was such a nice statement, not only about Mark's food, but about the fact that we were exceeding, you know, what it could be. Right. And I think, you know, not that we immediately raised the prices after that, but it, uh, we realized that, you know, what people were looking for was something different and. We've been every week talking about how to improve the experience and how to make it more special for guests. And it's really tough. There's this huge amount of competition in San Francisco especially, and you have to have some kind of hook or something else to, to stay relevant. And you know, we talked about that earlier this week, talking about like what can we do next to, to stay relevant. And uh, I really think you have to. Um, it can't just be good quality, um, especially because we chose a relatively quiet location. So we have to keep people coming back. There's not 100,000 people walking by the door every day where you might have that It's a double-edged sword, right? If there's that many more restaurants here, they definitely are a competition to you, but then they also push, everybody pushes everybody to get better. Mm -hmm. it, it sounds like there's a camaraderie, too, among the chef community and the culinary community here. Some. One there of you is, is laughing. No, there is some. There's definitely, I mean, there's some chefs I don't like, and some chefs <laughs> I don't like me. But I think for the most part, I think we do, I actually wish there was more camaraderie, because I feel like a lot of the chefs get together just for, like, you know, Meals on Wheels or Taste Nation, and it's hard for us to like, everyone's like so busy. Mm -hmm. So like my time I see the chefs is usually at the farmer's market. It's kind of reason I like to go, because I get to see the other chefs and talk with them and just chit chat a little bit and see how they are. But it's, we've like, I've I jokingly been making plans with other chefs to have dinner, but it's been like impossible. Granted, I also just had a newborn daughter, so. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you, but my last <laughs> one, a little crazy with the daughter. Yeah. Um, but it, it's always been a challenge to get like other chefs to like, just to get out not you know go drinking maybe do something else that's a little bit more constructive and right. sit down and talk it can be constructive, constructive <laughs> it does seem maybe i'm feel free to be like we're not talking about this but it seems like uh, the party culture here isn't quite as big maybe among the culinary community compared to other cities where like being in the restaurant community is really intense is that true? I mean, it seems like it's more serious here, and so there's less partying. I think it's true. Else. I'm not qualified. To no, answer, I think it's definitely <laughs> true. And I think primarily, I mean, one of the big reasons is because California closes down at 1 a.m. Right. Um, I think that's the biggest reason, to be honest. Like, when you're in New York City, <laughs> like, it closes at 4 or 5 in the morning. Right. And if you're a cook or chef getting off work at midnight, it's very easy to go out and have a bite to eat. And unwind. Um, and yeah. It's very difficult in San Francisco if you get off work at 11.30 midnight to find yeah. a place to grab food. I mean, there's like two or three places off the top of my head. Mel's. What about Mel's? Yeah. They're like <laughs> totally good. Everyone goes and gets a shake <laughs> after. Yeah. <laughs> it makes it challenging for a lot of cooks and chefs. So I think I think there's I think that is the biggest thing. I think why a lot of cooks and chefs don't go out as late as other cities because. Yeah. We. I mean, even outside, I don't work in the kitchen, but you know, outside of the restaurant industry, I feel like people just get up earlier and go to bed earlier here than most other places. Totally. And yeah. uh, hopefully, this is for a large collection of the population, but especially people love to get outside and there's a lot of opportunity to do that here. Uh, I mean, you can drive 20 minutes and be at the beach. You can drive 30 minutes and be in wine country. You know, you can drive a couple hours and be in some of the best skiing in the world. Right. And it's great that those are a lot of the recreational activities compared to, again, going back to Manhattan. I mean, you can do 
those things, but it's more of a trip. And there's obviously a thousand cultural opportunities in Manhattan and, and things to do, but a lot of them are indoors, and it's fair. It's you know 11 degrees in the winter and right. 190 percent humidity in the summer, so it's you know <laughs> you gotta have some air conditioning. Um, but I, I do think that that's a big part of why people enjoy living here, and, and a lot of the recreational activities are outdoors. Um, and it's that means you can do it during daylight, and maybe even get up a little earlier if you yeah. want to get them done. So it's very healthy. Yeah, and I mean so that makes sense. Um, anyway, we got way off topic. But <laughs> this is Rebecca Goberstein, and you're listening to Menu Stories, a podcast where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. We'll be right back with Matt Semelhack and Executive Chef Mark Lieberman of AQ. I started off, I think, fairly young in the restaurant industry. I think around 12, 13, I decided that I liked cooking. I mean, I didn't start cooking when I was 12, 13 in the restaurant industry, but it's when I decided I really liked it. That doesn't started, sound legal, yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, but I started cooking when I was 15. Mainly, I like prep cook dishwasher at a local little hotel by my parents' house in Sacramento. And I really enjoyed it. And I cooked there pretty much through high school. And then at 18, I decided I wanted to go to the CIA and pursue cooking full-time. So I never really, like, really was like, fermented college kid that was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I always wanted to cook. Why do you think that is? I think um, my parents are both cooks, and so is my grandmother. And I always grew up, not necessarily like like in the kitchen with them, but I always grew up eating homemade foods. So there's like part of it is I enjoyed the family time, sitting around the table. I like that aspect of the dining room and the restaurant. But I also, I was really big into art as a kid, and I, I kind of just decided like I didn't really want to do art, but I kind of like focused a lot of that into cooking and I don't know if like it's a big argument like or conversation whether cooking is art I think it's still very much a craft but I think it can be taken into an art form after you learn your craft Um, so I think um, I always just I like the artsy part of food just really intrigued me as a kid even before I started cooking I just loved looking at pictures of food and so I think that was one of the driving points to like really get into cooking and learning it yeah that's that's actually been uh, something that has come out in a few of our episodes to um, Chef Brenda, who I mentioned earlier for the cursing. <laughs> she, uh, she, she's so great. She studied art in college. And also Chef Melissa Perfit, who's now at Bar Crudo, was a cinematography major, I think, in college. And so it's just interesting how like the plating aspect and the creativity and the palettes that's interesting and that's not that uncommon I guess um, what what was it about your family's cooking that you think inspired food as that outlet um, I don't I don't think it was anything particular it was mainly the fact that we had dinner every night at home my mom's a good cook but she wasn't like a scoffier cooking at home every night it was uh, it was pretty no. simple food no, no offense <laughs> to you no yeah. I mean she's my mom's Colombian so we ended up eating a lot of Colombian food so a lot of rice beans plantains stewed meats and stuff so it wasn't like anything super fancy but it was always like really delicious and homemade but it was like a nightly occurrence so I think that's something that kind of built up in me personal relationship time almost yeah I mean that's a big inspiration for this podcast is the fact that restaurants are really the place where life happens and dinner and food and meals I mean in any culture that's where relationships are built I'm I'm curious then, pre-Matt, because I, I saw you studied food anthropology, Princeton. So how do you see that community building aspect tied to 
the food system as a whole and how do you think individual restaurants actually contribute to that? Because I think it's hard sometimes for people to think about that really specific singular experience and how that connects to that broader food world. Yeah, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, good segue. Yeah, I, I studied anthropology and it was it just my focus was in food because I liked it. Um, just like you said, it's how to connect people and food can be fuel and it can be just a necessary part of your day and for a lot of people that's true but it can also be you know much bigger part of what you believe in and, and politics and you know where you come from and what you do every day and what you think about and for me growing up it was uh, especially from my mom's side of the family which is Chinese um, it was all you talk about. It, it wasn't just food, it was also, you know, constant debates about the, the best way to cook a chicken properly or, you know, which noodles are the best ones from which place. And, and still to this day, my grandparents, who my grandfather's 97, will be arguing about the best place to go have Chinese dinner. And when, when we visit at Christmas, it's, oh, that the chef changed, so we're not going to go back there. You know, that's that sort of thing. And they're incredibly, we were uh, joking about the right word for my mom. It might be persnickety, it might be. <laughs> High standards. Uh, one of those is probably more negative. But it's incredibly dedicated to eating well, to the point of being very disappointed if you're if you're wasting a meal on mediocre food. Um, and so that's that's another level outside of the food as fuel. One step above that, I'd say. So I think you know, yes, a single restaurant maybe is not going to change the the landscape of food culture in America. But I think being part of a movement can. So I mean, you know, yeah, we don't we don't have such great ambitions that AQ is going to stop childhood obesity because people are more focused on local food. But you know, we'd like to think that we're part of that. And I think although it's a singular entity, we serve forty thousand people a year. So wow, that's amazing. Right? I mean, you think, and we're not that big of a restaurant. Right. You know? Yeah. I was just thinking, so I guess. and we have five restaurants. So right. it adds up uh, pretty quickly. And so I mean, if you can instill some of those values through food, um, then maybe you are making a difference. And I think. Certainly, the people that come through here as employees or, or vendors or affiliates or anything like that, um, we also like to think that we're affecting those people in a, in a positive way to, to think more carefully about food and where it comes from and where it's going. You know, we're not, we don't claim that 100% of our ingredients are organic or, or anything like that, but I mean, we, we strive for really high quality. We like to use small local farms as much as possible. And um, I do think that most people that have worked for Mercer Restaurant Group have left with a slightly improved sense of values uh, about the things that they put in their body and, and the things that they serve to other people. And that's a big part of our ethos, that people leave with more knowledge about food than they came with and a dedication to quality ingredients and sourcing. What are some of the ways that you bring about that? I think the, the biggest way we can do it is through service knowledge. Because we, we don't write on the menu, you know, every farm that we get stuff from, or we don't write everything is from an organic place. And so we, we spend a lot of time training our staff to be able to answer those questions. But I also think people that have dined with us over the few years realize that we get really good beef, we get really good milk from different dairy farms. So it's it's hard to pass that ethos on to a guest without writing it on the menu, I guess. So I think the best way for us to do it is through our staff knowledge. I think it's important to note that Chef says good, and that doesn't necessarily have to mean uh, biodynamic, but the reality is that local and fresh usually does mean good. Uh, and so when we're saying it's the best meat we can get, it doesn't mean search the world for Wagyu beef, that's the best you could possibly fly in overnight. The reality is that we think we're serving the best quality ingredients that we can, and most of them happen to be from the Bay Area. And I don't think it's being snobby, I think it's just a, it's just a reality. <laughs> you know, a lot, yeah. of the, a lot of the produce in the country comes from the Bay Area. I think something else that you guys are bringing that helps bring that mindfulness, if you will, to the menu and to the food is the seasonality. 
Um, obviously, almost every restaurant here that cares a lot about its food focuses on the seasons and seasonal ingredients, but the way you construct the menu and the decor, it seems very visual and more in your face in a good way to the guests. Why did you bring that seasonality to the forefront so much? Um, I think beyond the menu, we didn't want it just to be a note on the bottom that says we change the menu seasonally. You know, without without thrusting down people's throats in terms of the verbiage on the menu saying this this chicken's name is Julian and he was born <laughs> last week and he lived a nice life and here's a picture of his pasture. Some of the people are like, know. oh, I want yeah. this well, chicken right. anymore. And, you know, it's, it's been joked about a lot uh, on Portlandia and, and elsewhere, but the, you know that information is available to people that ask, and um, I think we, we want our guests to feel like they could just come have a celebratory dinner and, and not have any idea where their chicken's from, but if they're curious, our staff should know. And I think that that's why we wanted to make it very clear that we're celebrating the seasons, and really, you know, that word celebrating is, I think, more important than saying, you know, it has to be seasonal, or, you know, we can't possibly serve tomatoes because it's April, and that kind of thing, but from the beginning, we wanted to make sure that people were aware that the reasons why we change the menu with the seasons and I think it's it's also important to note that the menu changes quite frequently it's not on the summer solstice it changes to summer <laughs> and the, the point is um, seasonality is very fluid the day that it becomes autumn on the calendar has very little to do with the day that tomatoes go out of season especially here especially here yeah. um, and so then the change in the decor and the uniforms and the logos and everything else, the graphics, um, is really meant to, in San Francisco especially, you don't necessarily know that the seasons are changing um, except on your plate and when you go to farmer's market. And that, That's such a very good point. And that was probably me coming from the East Coast and, and feeling, okay, you know, actually, people in San Francisco don't have any idea what season it is, right. uh, unless you tell them. Well, I mean, <laughs> just, today. Yeah, yeah, it's middle of June, yeah. and it's absolutely freezing. Right, right, exactly. Like, yeah, gale force winds outside. It's tomorrow, too. <laughs> right, it's so cold. It's, yeah, June so gloom. I, I, every once in a while, like, look at my phone at the, the weather app, and, yeah, in Cloverdale right now, where our farm is, it's... 70 and raining tomorrow. On Wednesday, it'll be 100 degrees. San Francisco, the, the high today is 59. <laughs> and then... It feels like 32. It feels like 32, <laughs> yeah. Right. And in, in New York, it's 90 and sunny all week, thunderstorms. You know, and yeah. I think that Palo Alto is 73 and perfect. Um, and I think it's the reality of what the season is, in the Bay Area especially, is really seen through food. And that's, that's yeah. super exciting. And uh, I think that's what, with the decor, we really wanted to remind people that the seasons change, uh, not just on the plate, in other places, in normal places. <laughs> and I think that that's definitely growing up in the East Coast. You, know, you want to see the leaves changing colors, and you want to see snow on the ground on Christmas Day, and, or Hanukkah, excuse me. Okay. Ground uh, numbered here. <laughs> uh, during the holidays. The <laughs> we, we have to say I don't that. I know that's like a little <laughs> thing that <laughs> Jewish kids do. During the holidays. Um, so I think we really wanted to, to make sure we were celebrating those changes, even though the reality is it's constant. And to be fair, I mean, like a one-foot radius outside of San Francisco has normal seasons. That's <laughs> yeah. true. So to say. And so I think probably while their produce is seasonal, while we sit on this windy old knob out in the ocean out here. <laughs> At least we get to eat their food. From a chef standpoint, it just kind of makes sense to me. The seasons have been always the driving force for like what dishes we're going to write and how we're going to write them. And getting more familiar with the Bay Area over the last five years, I kind of know like when pomegranates are going to come in season. It's always, it makes it uh, challenging at the same time as it makes it you know, refreshing to like see all those things in the market. Um, the constraints of kind of the season. Yeah, I mean definitely I like to complain in the, in the winter. 
for like four months it's just beets and carrots but then you go to New York yeah and in New York it's like just cabbage and beets pickles I mean we still have like a lot of citrus here and we have a lot of still fruit producing in the winter because I know in other parts of the country like that's not the case but I think even more so we've gotten a little better at our larder preserving some of those flavors and try to utilize them in later seasons I think just like with the conversation about what good food is, it can't be said enough that it would be easier to eat seasonally, right, in, in the Bay Area. You have to source things from other places if you want to not cook seasonally. And for sure, in other places, in Manhattan, again, as an example, you have to. It would be very limited. The, the food choice in Manhattan yeah. in, in February would be very limited. Um, if you didn't source things from further away, people talk about this movement in, in the Bay Area. The reality is in most other places in the world where you can't ship things overnight from Mexico or the Central Valley, you have to eat seasonally. And it's actually a great thing. And if you start to go outside of that, you're running the risk of finding things that are designed to ship well or have longer shelf life or whatever it is. And I mean, I think it's, it's obviously been great the last 20 years or 40 years now to, to see things start to ship back the other way. But ironically, it's actually probably easier to get local produce in the Bay Area than it is to get non-local produce. Yeah, I think I think for uh, from a chef, you're always looking for the best flavor. And realistically, if you buy figs now, like the figs are delicious, versus if you try to get figs shipped in in April, they have no flavor. They just look like figs. They look like figs, yeah. Yeah. They're not like right now, like it's summertime, but tomatoes aren't here yet, so we probably won't even get anything with tomatoes until September or October, which is essentially like going in the fall. But that's just kind of like when tomatoes are their their best here. Here, right. So as you've gone through the last five years and developed Mercer Restaurant Group and um, and AQ as a as a restaurant itself, what's been the most challenging thing about this journey? The current status of finding good cooks in San Francisco has been one of the most challenging things, and it's it's very hard to build a team that consistently strives to do really good work. And right now we have a really good team, but it, every time like we lose a cook, it takes almost like three months to find a cook to replace them. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a challenging thing to like really retain those cooks and keep them motivated. And but I think that's one of the big things you talk to any chef right now in San Francisco. It's finding good staff. Yeah. And this, I think there's just a big shortage of cooks and also a lot of like, really great restaurants in the city right now. Why do you think that is? I think I think the biggest thing is the expense of living here. But that's a long long conversation. But I think that's the driving force right now is it's really expensive to live in San Francisco. And it's incredibly difficult to pay cooks a living wage for any restaurant. And so you have to find different ways to do that. And a lot of cooks sometimes just decide that it's better to go live in Portland or go live in East Bay or go live in Minnesota, where there's really good restaurants now, but it's the cost of living there is half or even a quarter of what they pay here. There's also like a restaurants now that are opening up, and so it makes it difficult. Like every week, if you look at Eater, there's like 10 new restaurants. And it's like... So that's, I mean, that's part of us being relevant and trying to like keep the momentum going and try to keep changing things up and moving forward. Is that like every ten, every ten days, there's like five new restaurants opening up, and some are like you know, some are super casual and some are also like fine dining destinations. So you're competing with all of that, and then the delivery systems as well. Yeah. At the end of the day, too, like we have to run the business, so it's not always just like in the kitchen cooking. A lot of it has to do with paperwork, and so when we're down like two cooks, all of that paperwork usually gets aside for a little bit and then one day we give like fill out like yeah you know 100 100,000 invoices and paychecks and stuff so it's it makes it challenging we're down like two cooks it, that, that's a very common challenge that chefs and and um, the people that we talk to on menu stories have shared almost every single one shares that that's a problem and it's just kind of a scary red flag of what's coming in San Francisco in this area right now 
how can people help solve that problem of like <laughs> is there is, is there uh, a I don't know if there's a solution I think the big thing what we've been trying to do here is really change the way we foster our cooks and make it a place where they want to come work um, I, grew, I grew up cooking in a place where it was fear driven and you get yelled a lot and you get screamed at a lot and sometimes you get hit um, and so we've really stepped away from that like whole philosophy of screaming at the cooks and no, number one also like the kitchen's pretty much on the dining room floor so we can't really berate the cooks and also it doesn't make it a place where people want to come work and so we've really tried to like make it a very stern environment because we want to put out good food and that requires to have some things in place but at the same time making a place where people come work here it's a place where they enjoy coming um, and they can push really hard and put good food out and make people happy uh, but it's not like a place where you come and you hate coming to because you're going to yell that. Yeah. Um, so that that's for us is trying to like being able to retain people and, and foster them and make them uh, more of a long-term staff member. Right. I think there's no surprise that in the last few years in San Francisco um, and the Bay Area in general and maybe even the country in general, the trend is becoming more casual. Restaurants are becoming more casual and there's a lot of expenses associated with fine dining, both in terms of the actual you know the linens that you need to put on the tables, quality of the silverware, the cleaning, um, the heat ceramics, and the heat ceramics, uh, they're wonderful, so expensive, <laughs> uh, and uh, but ultimately the labor. San Francisco is a very unique place for a lot of reasons. Also in San Francisco, the environment in the last five years since we've been open has changed dramatically, both in terms of minimum wage skyrocketing effectively. There's no what's called a tip credit in California, which is one of seven or eight states that has it, and it means that you have to pay all of minimum wage, which sounds nasty when you say it that way, but the reality is that most of the places you can supplement the wages with tips, um, and in California you cannot. So as a result, you just have fewer people working in restaurants. The restaurant can only afford to, to pay fewer people. That means they all work really hard and are you know, physically and mentally stressed. Um, it means that the level of service is generally more casual, because it has to be. You can't have five people coming over to your table at once to drop plates. And, and I think that that is going to continue for the foreseeable future until something changes. And the most obvious thing that will change is prices will continue to go up, but they're already pretty high for the guests. I mean, and uh, you know, in recent years, people have been adding the healthy SF surcharge and going to automatic gratuity and things like that to try to adjust it. But in reality, it's just another fine item on your check rather than raising prices, because I think restaurant owners are very fearful of just raising prices and losing customers, especially when there's a huge amount of competition. So I. I since we opened AQ five years ago, every other project since has been more casual. The most recent one that we're involved with, the Sababa, is a fast casual concept designed to have multiple locations, and it's $12 average check, and very, very casual. It's, you know, there's no table service. I love that name. Thank you. And uh, it, I do only because I went on birthright, of course. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we were uh, <laughs> taught by, <laughs> by uh, our group leader, who was like a, an old Israeli, like retired army sergeant, what Sababa meant. And I just, that's the only word I really remember. It means basically like, it's all good, it's all going to be great, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like Aloha almost, yeah, sort of. Yeah, very much like Aloha. And so, yeah, so the logo for Sababa is a thumbs up. And that's kind awesome. of the <laughs> physical embodiment of the feeling of Sababa. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll transition to the what the most rewarding thing is. I, I think the most challenging thing has, has been the last few years, the changing political, social, and economic climate in San Francisco and keeping up with that. And being forced to evolve. can say with 100% confidence that restaurants that don't evolve somehow will close or 
at least suffer hugely, um, or that didn't already fit into the mold that will work. And I think we've only seen the tip of the iceberg, not to be fear-mongering, but we've only really seen the tip of the iceberg of challenges unless things change swiftly. But in terms of most rewarding things, seeing our employees come up through the ranks and go on to do their own projects has been incredibly rewarding. And Guy Eschel, the owner of Sababa, certainly the idea guy behind it, uh, just opened two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, is getting killed every day in terms of um, working really hard, which is a good thing. Uh, for him. It's just incredibly rewarding to see somebody who worked, who was literally on the opening team at AQ, for, and I think worked here for four years, and during that time hatched a business plan, and we talked to him a lot, and gave him a lot of advice, and very much his idea, his concept, his business, but we're very proud to see people like that go on and do their own thing. And I know that he looks up hugely to Mark in terms of kind of the standards of food quality control and, and cleanliness and technique, and I'm sure Mark would still give him some pointers on some of those things, <laughs> but um, when you go into the kitchen at Sababa, you can see it. Yeah. And he's, he's now passing those things on to his cooks, and you know, just to come full circle on your original point, I think that that's how we hope to you know, help change things and, and be a part of the, the food culture changing. So what, what are the most rewarding things that you've uh, experienced over this time? There's two things for me. I think that's also a big thing is seeing our staff grow and excel. And I've spent a good amount of time with other cooks from other kitchens over the many years. And then I've also seen how our cooks progress and how our cooks go out and work in other restaurants. And I think uh, it's, it's very rewarding to see how they hold their own with their cleanliness and how they set up their station due to, uh, you know, partly to myself, but also to the really good sous chefs we have here that spend a lot of time of the day in showing them how to like be professional at their job. So that's always been a rewarding thing to me. But I think also the big thing is just seeing our guests. We have a lot of return guests that come here and they thoroughly enjoy when we change the seasons. The kitchen's pretty much on the dining room, so we, I can see like everyone eating. And it's, it's a very rewarding thing to see like you make a dish and seeing people stop what they're doing and sit down and like eat their food as opposed to like keeping talking. So I think that's something that AQ's been very good at is, you know, delivering a product that creates a really unique experience. I had a, a little anecdote recently. We were at our neighboring restaurant, Phoenix, that just opened also, and uh, recognized a guest from AQ. Said, oh, you look familiar. I, I don't remember your name, but you look familiar. And we started chatting, and, and she proceeded to not only say how you know happy she was to have been at AQ quite a few times, um, she had her one-year-old had her birthday party at AQ, which is uh, kind of amazing because it's a fine dining restaurant. Um, Very San Francisco in the moment. Yeah. But, uh, but she also, um, you know, without much prompting, described dishes from 2013 yeah. from the fall menu at AQ and, you know, kind of wistfully uh, remembered them and how good they were and then went on to name some other dishes from last year and from, from different seasons, and then said the name of our manager that we opened with and the name of our server a few times. Wow, and like, cool. you know, and I was, I was, I hope that she was not the only one that, that has had that experience at AQ. And now, you know, hopefully having a Phoenix next door. So we hope that that idea of an ecosystem is just that, where it's they're not all individual entities. The themes are carrying through and our values are carrying through. And, and hopefully that means guests come back for that reason, but also that our staff goes on and spreads those values elsewhere. What are you looking forward to with Phoenix and Sababa and kind of the next, the next five years? This year, my very resounding goal was to start having produce come from our farm. And we're close. It's already June, which is going to be challenging. But we are getting weekly deliveries from from Cloverdale, uh, which is about an hour and a half north. Um, we are steadily developing a piece of property outside of the town of Cloverdale to 
get animal products and produce and really kind of specialty stuff. Not uh, not it's not going to be onions and potatoes and, ca and corn, but we planted 250 trees this past year in an orchard that are. I think there's there's 250 actual trees and there's I want to say like 125 varietals. So there's a lot of single trees of of unusual heirloom variety apples and pears and plums. And I think that that, um, for me anyway, is, is kind of the next big exciting venture, but also, you know, completing that, uh, that kind of circular ecosystem of Mercer Restaurant Group. Um, we probably will not get into, you know, wine and viniculture anytime soon, but things like olive oil are well within reach. And we've talked about coffee in the past and butter and dairy and, and all these things that are really exciting. Like the big thing, like I've been wanting to do is step away from like dried spices and dried ingredients that are all imported and get rid of all our imported things and start focusing on how can we make things from our farm and use them in a, a different way. And so it's it's sometimes like right now the farm brings stuff once a week and he sometimes brings like 25 bunches of roux. And I'm like, what am I going to do with 25 bunches of roux? And so it, it makes us kind of like really rethink like what we're going to do with it. But I think that to me is the most exciting thing is like just looking at ingredients in a different way and really getting the cooks excited about it and the servers excited about it and just creating it's almost reminding me of what Dan Barber is so doing. So that's, yeah, when you asked earlier what inspiration, I, I don't think I ever answered the, the question, but Blue Hill at Ben Barnes is easily the number one source of inspiration for me. And, and they have they have a lot of things that we don't have in terms of the history of the farm and, and the size of it and the establishment, but in terms of their goals and how they connect is certainly along the lines of what we're shooting for. I'm sure that you'll be able to really taste the difference too, and also just from the fresh ingredients in general, it, you know, having full control over that is probably going to be even more noticeable on the menu, and then yeah. also just from a business sense. But it's, it's also, also exciting to have access to, uh, to plants in all their stages. Like, whereas right now, like when I go to the farm, when I go to the farmer's market, it's everyone's buying the same carrot um, that I'm buying. It's sort of different yourself, like having access to the, the plant in all these different when it's like in seed or when it's the shoots or when it's like fully matured or even if I tell farmer Ron to like leave it in the ground for six, seven months and see what happens and let it mature even more. Like we have access to all that where a lot of restaurants don't have that capability. Hey, think about that. That's I, really exciting. I think what, yeah, something that Mark just touched on a second ago is new flavors. It's yeah. hard, I think, for people to think about the fact that there are new flavors still to be discovered or created and what Dan Barbara has been focused on is literally breeding new varietals of things and that is super exciting. I think that that's a direction that they're going that we're not as yeah. focused on and, and they also use root to shoot cooking and all stages of things and I think that seems to be what gets this chef excited uh -huh. more than uh, more than the breeding new you know purple peas and, and that's really interesting but that's a whole nother level of science of establishment yeah. and science and infrastructure that we do not have but access to produce all year round, whether it be wild and forage or grown on our property, and that's where we can really differentiate. Well, thank you for taking the time and coming on to Menu Stories, and we're really excited to see you at the farm. On the next episode of Menu Stories, we continue the discussion with Matt Semelhack and more of the team from Mercer Restaurant Group when we take an adventure to the north of San Francisco and visit the farm that we learned about on this episode. Stay tuned. Subscribe to Menu Stories on menustories.com so you can get the next episode delivered to your inbox. 
You can listen on our website, iTunes, and SoundCloud. And be sure to find us on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. This episode was edited by yours truly. And special thanks to Patrick Wong, who created the behind-the-scenes video for this episode. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. And until next time, happy eating. Thank you.